was in college, a long time ago now, um, I went home one week to visit my family in Western Kentucky. And uh, I was driving a 99 Chevrolet Silverado um, pickup truck at that time. I'm still mourning the loss of my beloved truck. And I remember driving home and I needed new tires. And I didn't have the four, five, six, seven hundred dollars how much it cost to get tires. I didn't have the money as a college student to do that. And so I remember just talking to my dad and, and, and him taking my truck to the tire store and him putting new tires on my, my car. And I remember just like looking at my dad and, and just being like so thankful and going, Dad, why, why did you do that? Like, why would you spend your heart on money? Like, you've already given so much to me. You've been raising me this whole, my, my whole life. You've been pouring out so much on me. Why in the world would you do this? Like, I remember him just looking at me and saying, you know, I love you. And I want you to remember this, Brandon. Like, one day when you have kids, like, when you have a son, when you have a daughter, and when you do have some money, I want you to remember this moment. I want you to bless your children. I want you to take this blessing and pay it forward. And I was thinking about those, that moment in my life with my dad as thinking through the story of Exodus, where we are today, Exodus 19 and 20. Up until this point in the story, God has moved in some, in some incredibly powerful ways to set the Israelites free from their slave drivers. He has, sell, he has dealt sovereignly. He has dealt harshly with those who have opposed, with those who have oppressed his people, both by plagues and by punishment and by death. But here's what hit me. The goal for the Israelites, the goal of God, wasn't just to get the people out of slavery. No, that's why the story doesn't end last week as Douglas taught on Exodus 14. No, it, it seems that salvation or deliverance, however you want to talk about this, though it was a huge part of the Israelite story, though it's a huge part of our story, a huge part of our journey, the, the deliverance, the salvation was not the finish line. It was a starting point. And what we're going to see today is that God has this magnificent plan to form a people a people through which he could love, a people through which he could bless the entire world. And while salvation, though it required some from the Israelites, the Passover required faith to, to take the lamb's blood and put on the doorframe, it required faith to, to walk through the sea when there was nothing but, but sea in front of them, though it required, salvation required some faith and some action from the people of God. Salvation was mostly a gift from the Lord. But sanctification, this idea of, of growing up in God, this idea of maturing in God, or maybe I can say it like this, learning how to live life as the people of God requires much more participation, much more intentionality, both from the Israelites and from us. And so today, here's what I want to do. I want to look at, at how God goes about growing up his people. I want us to look at the places of participation that God invites us into this idea of sanctification. And we'll see the way that God will use it to bless the world. So Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. You guys with me this morning? Starting in verse 1, this is a word of the Lord that's been given to us. It says, On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. And after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the, the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and he said, this is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully 
and you keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. So Moses ran back down the mountain. He summoned the elders of the people. He set this before them. All the words that the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. And Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And so God has just delivered his people out of slavery in a powerful, profound way. Out of Egypt. And we see the first of the three things that we're going to talk about today in this story that God wants both for and from his people. And the first is this, faithfulness. What we see that God wants from his people in Exodus chapter 19 is faithfulness. This is so beautiful when we can see what God is doing here in terms of a relationship. You know, when a bride and a groom are standing in front of each other on their wedding day, when the bride's decked out in white and she's got her veil and the, and the, and the groom's got her suspenders and his bow tie and they've got their, their people up front with them, when, when, they, when they're standing up front at the altar, one of the things that a couple always gives to each other, one of the things that they covenant is their faithfulness. Right, so I was thinking about, you know, Logan and Jill at Union Station six years ago. Uh, you didn't stand at the altar and say, you know, today, you know, Jill, I promise that I'm going to love you with half my heart for the rest of my life. And, and Josh and April at the mill, you know, April, you didn't look at, at Josh and say, I promise to be faithful to you, Josh, when you're at home. And, uh, and Ann and Amos, I don't know where you guys got married. And, uh, but, but Amos, you didn't look at Ann and say, I, I promise to, to be yours half the time. No, that would be the worst wedding ever. We would all object. And, but there, there, there's something about this when a, when a man and, and a woman are standing in front of each other, when, when, when Maggie and Ed are standing at the altar, they, they look in each other's eyes and say, for the rest of this life, I'm fully yours. I'm fully yours and, and I'm going to be faithful to you. You are, you are mine and I am yours. I give you all that I have for the rest of this life. And we hear those words and we cheer and we celebrate and we dance and we drink and we party the night away. And I want us to see this in Exodus 19. This is a very big moment for the Israelites. That God Almighty, the creator of the world, is looking at Israel, this people. And he says, I want you. And I want you to be mine that you will be my treasured possession. You like that, Jones, don't you? You will be my, my treasured possession. That which is most close to my heart. And together, we will bless this world. Together, we will live in holiness together. And the people of Israel who know that, that they had outkicked their coverage with God, who knew that they were getting the better end of the deal here, they had seen the goodness and the power and the realness of God Almighty. And they say with a, without, without question, we, we want that, God. We, we want you, God. We want everything that you have. We want to be your treasure possession. We want, we want you, God. We want to be faithful to you. And if you've ever been on the receiving end of the blessing and the salvation of the Lord Jesus, if you've tasted the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for all of your sins, if you have tasted the deliverance that comes from Jesus of all of your oppressors, if he has brought you out of the waters of baptism into a new life, fresh life, you respond the same way the people of Israel did, that we want all of you, God. We want to be your faithful people. And the first thing that we see that God wants for and from his people as he matures them, as he matures us, is their faithfulness. 
The second factor, the second thing that we see that God wants for his people is not just their faithfulness. He wants them to fear him. God wants our faithfulness. God wants us to fear him. Starting in verse 10. Lord said to Moses, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, listen to this, be careful that you don't approach the mountain. Don't touch a foot of it. For whoever touches a mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is even to be laid on them. No, no person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. Let's keep going. Let's keep listening to this. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. He said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day and abstain from sexual relations. And on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. This isn't a story. This isn't a fairy tale. This is a real story. Listen to this. With a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. And everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Sinai and he called Moses at the top. Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down, warn the people that, so that they do not force their way to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord, they must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people can't come up Mount Sinai. You yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down, bring up Aaron with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And so that's a long, thanks for hanging with me. There's fear all in this story. Can you imagine this scene in verses 16 and 19, what this would have been like for them? They're, they're in the desert. All of a sudden, this thunder and lightning storm start coming. What happens when you're outside and it starts thundering and lightning? You take shelter. What's the thing that's missing in the middle of the wilderness? Can you imagine? It says that a loud trumpet is blasting. And it appears that there's not just some middle school band student playing the trumpet and the Israelite people, that, that no one has a trumpet, that, that this trumpet, this blast seems to be coming from heaven. Could you imagine going outside today in the same way they, they have those, those sirens where they test, you know, for storms? Could you imagine looking up to heaven and hearing a trumpet blast? How terrifying that would be. You're in the middle of the desert. It's thundering, it's lightning. There's this trumpet being blasted very loudly in increasing measure. They walk up to this mountain, not like a mountain in Colorado that's clothed in snow and beautiful. No, they walk up to this mountain that's on fire. It's billowing with smoke. You ever seen a house that's caught on fire? You can see smoke from miles away. And it's not just this sight, it's not just a spectacle, it's what God tells the people. Do not touch the mountain or I will break out against you. You will die. It's terrifying. We love to, to make God like a Mr. Rogers, sweet and cuddly, 
That's not the picture of God in Exodus 19. Why does God appear this way to the Israelites? Every time someone encounters God in the scriptures, it's not always this fear-inducing moment. Abraham in Genesis 12, he's not fearful of God. Moses in Exodus chapter 3, he doesn't have this terrifying moment. You think about times in your life where you've encountered God, and, and it's not always this terrifying moment, right? But you also see times in Scripture. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, Mary in Luke chapter 1, Peter in Luke chapter 5, when they behold the presence of God, and it is terrifying. Peter says in Luke 5, get away from me, Lord. Why is the presence of God so terrifying? I don't know. I was having coffee with a friend this week, a guy from our church, and he was asking me this question. He says, I don't understand the fear of the Lord. I'm like, Ryan, I'm right there with you. I don't understand it. I kept reading this week, Exodus chapter 20, verse 20. It's this beautiful verse where God says, I want the fear of God to be with you, to be in you, to keep you from sinning. Interesting. I was thinking about the way that Courtney and I are trying to raise our children to mature them up. Fear has its place in our relationship with our children. See, fear is about understanding authority. We're trying to teach our children who the authority is in their lives. Our children are not competent to be the authority in all of their places of life. They don't know everything. They don't know, they haven't learned what we know, what we have learned. And so we tell them things like this. Hey, don't touch the pan that is full of boiling water on the stove. And a few years ago, Finley pulls up her little stool and she touches that pan full of boiling water on the stove. And it burned her little finger and she cried and she cried and it hurt and it hurt and it hurt. You see, there's a moment where she questioned our authority. She didn't fear us. She thought she knew what was best and it turns out she didn't. She had to learn the hard way that, that Court and I, we use our authority to protect her, to mature her. But here's the deal, until Finley, until Jones, until they learn to fear us by giving up their independence, until they learn to yield to our authority, they'll keep learning the hard way that we are actually worthy of their fear. I think it's so interesting in Exodus 19 that God doesn't come to the people and say, hey, don't be afraid. You know, all throughout Scripture, you see this. This is the number one command all throughout Scripture. Fear not, fear not, fear not. Do you notice in Exodus 19, God doesn't say that? He's wanting to instill this, this fear in us. He's wanting to understand. He's wanting us to understand his holiness, his authority, his difference. God desires for his people to be faithful. He desires for his people to fear him. This builds into the third thing that we discover about God is that he wants us to follow his words. He wants our faithfulness. He wants us to fear him. He wants us to follow his words. I don't know if you've ever read through the 10 commandments in Exodus chapter 20, 
But God gives his people instruction. He gives them principles that they are to follow. I taught on the Ten Commandments a couple years ago. You can go back and listen to the podcast if you want a little bit more in depth here. But I just want to touch on these real quickly. It's interesting that the first four of the Ten Commandments all have to do with, with the people, the people of Israel, their relationship with God. So the four things that God lays out, the first four commandments, hey, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, don't create anything and bow down to it. Um, don't use the Lord's name in vain and honor the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. First, we're all about the community's relationship with the Lord. The, the, the last six commandments are all about the relationship that the community has with each other. And so God will say this, hey, honor your mother and father. And don't steal and don't kill, and don't commit adultery, and don't lie, and don't covet. And I was thinking about Exodus chapter 20, the, the Ten Commandments, these, the, the, the things that God, the principles that he gives to, to shape his people, the laws that he lays before them. And, and I was thinking about how, how good they are. Tim Keller would call it, a, a, the, the commandments, a, a thing of beauty. You think about the ten things that, that God tells his people. How if we were to actually keep them, we actually find life and freedom and our community functions very beautifully. If the people of God actually lived like this, if they actually submitted their lives to following these, imagine what life would be like. What if we always told the truth? Our court systems would look very different. What if we learn to be content with what the Lord has given to us in terms of what we look like, where we live, what we do, who we are married to? What if we didn't covet what others had? What if instead we rejoice fully with people as they receive things that we don't even have ourselves? What if we quit killing each other? I was talking to a friend last night. Both of his parents are um, police officers in New York City. And I said, what is that like? He said, it's terrifying. My mom's counting down the days until she can retire. I'm like, I can imagine. What if God really was our God. And we didn't worship things that we created. Imagine what our church, our community, our nation would look like if we actually lived into this, if we followed this. You know, so I was trying to figure out, how do I, how do I bring this text down? Like, happened thousands of years ago. How, how do we bring this down into our lives? What does this mean for us? How does Exodus 19 and 20 speak into our lives today? And, and what I was thinking about us, I was thinking about how to apply this. And, and what I realized is that, that we have to see the bigger picture of what happens after this moment. That my Bible doesn't end at Exodus 20. Does yours? Like, no, there's a whole lot, there's a whole, whole lot more there. In fact, it's the very beginning of the story. So all of this happens. God gives the commandments and God gives his covenant and the people are zealous to, to be the people of God. But the Israelites don't live this happily ever after life. 
The Israelites are unfaithful. They don't fear God. They don't follow his ways. Now what you see as you keep reading is that the zeal of the people of Israel, it quickly fades. And we discover that this is not the fairy tale ending that we'd hoped for. As time goes on, just a few weeks actually, the people of God forget God. Can you even imagine that? Can you imagine like, you know, you are delivered out of 430 years of slavery. And every house in Egypt is crying because their firstborn son is dead. And you're holding your firstborn son. And you are the firstborn son. You're married to the firstborn son. You're dating the firstborn son. And they're alive. You go to the sea, you, you, you go to the, the ocean, and, and you watch as God parts the sea and you walk through it. They're standing at the mountain and, and they hear the voice of God. And a few weeks later, they forget. How do you even do that? They start bowing down and worshiping things that they create. And we do this too. My goodness. We have these incredible moments with God. The gospel uh, takes root in our hearts and starts growing. We start receiving the blessing of the Lord. We start seeing God. We start hearing from God. We start seeing him move. We start seeing prayers being answered. And then we go through seasons where it seems that God is distant. And how often in those seasons we start giving our lives to lesser things, to worshiping things that our own hands create. Most of us don't have idols carved out of wood, covered in gold. Cows in our living rooms that we go, to, go home to at night and bow down and worship, right? We don't worship the things that, that, that they made, but we worship the things that we make. What are the things that we make with our own hands? Money, our careers, our children, ourselves. And it is so easy to worship gods with a little g before and over we worship God Almighty. Especially when God seems distant. All of us, those of us who are Christians, those of us who have given our lives to Jesus, who are walking with Christ, we've all had these moments where we question his authority. Where we choose not to fear him. Instead of believing that his commands are good, we start to believe that his commands, his words are inhibiting, they're joy stealing. And so we metaphorically touch the pan on the stove. How do we do this? We let our minds drift. Thinking about how good life would be if. If I had their job. If I had their spouse. If I had their car. If I had their house. And what seems to be harmless daydreaming quickly turns us into ungrateful coveters. Or we lie. We lie to cover something up. We lie to avoid a hard conversation. We lie to avoid the consequences of what we have done. Then we find ourselves fearful. Fearful of people discovering the truth, so we tell more lies. And it hit me. I was going, man, there's a, there's a big story. 
The point of Exodus 19 and 20 isn't, hey, God wants us to be faithful and to fear him and to follow his commands. And so right now we're all going to stand up. And for the rest of this week, for the rest of our lives, we're going to be faithful and we're going to fear God. We're going to follow him. You with me? No, you see, the story is it keeps going. As we keep walking in the same pattern, where we're zealous for God, we come to God, we say, God, we want you, we want to give our lives to you. And we have these moments where we're, we're so faithful, where we fear God properly, where we, where we, where we walk in, in his commands, where we follow him. And then we inevitably fall. Take our eyes off of him, we worship lesser things. So what do we do? Do we settle for this life of, okay, every time I fall, I'm just going to get back up and try harder until I finally can do this? See, as the story keeps going, we meet Jesus. And as we read about Jesus, we just keep, we just keep waiting for him to be like everyone else in the scriptures. But he's just not. He doesn't have those moments where uh, of slip up and forgetfulness like the Israelites, like us. He doesn't go through a season where he worships his job or his money or his family more than the Lord. He doesn't go through this place where he wants what other people have. You watch as Jesus is alone with women and he walks with them in purity and holiness. You see the way that Jesus loves the poor. The way that he forgives the sinner. The way that Jesus lifts up the humble. The way that Jesus walks with God. And we see in Jesus the life that every one of us want to live. And what I realize is part of Exodus 19 and 20 is this story reveals to us our deep desire to be God's people. Right? I mean, you are here today because you want to be God's people. Mark, you're here today because you want to be God's man. Danielle, you're here visiting. We're going to try to talk you come back and move here again. But, but you're here today because, because you want to be God's woman. Nathan, you want to be God's man. We, we, we are here because we want to be God's people, right? Amen? Amen? We don't want to play this game. We're tired of falling. We're tired of stumbling. We're tired of, uh, of setting our eyes on less than We want to be God's people. We want to be as zealous for his glory as God is for his own glory. We want to be faithful and to fear him and to follow him. Think about what Paul said. Galatians chapter 3. He says the law, the commandments, the Old Testament, he calls it our guardian. The Ten Commandments, they were our guardian until Christ Jesus came. I think about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, this profound moment where he's giving this epic sermon. He says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Exodus 19 and 20 is incomplete without Jesus because what it does is it shows us our desire 
to be God's people. But Exodus 19 and 20 doesn't tell us how we're able to be God's people, how we can remain God's people. We need Jesus for that. God Almighty has not changed. That God wants us, as we're sitting in these uncomfortable chairs, he wants us to be faithful. He wants us to fear him. He wants us to follow him. He has not lowered the bar on what the expectation is for his people. But God knows that the law could never provide that for us. That our zeal would fade. And so God sent his son, Jesus. Jesus, who was faithful. Jesus Christ, who did fear God perfectly. Jesus Christ, who kept every single command of God. And he tells us, Lori, if you want to be my people, Riley, if you want to be my people, Sarah and Dale, if you want to be my people, John and Jessica, Joey and Kelly, if you want to be my people, Kelly, Gary, if you want to be my people, Chris, if you want to be my people, Tim, if you want to be my people, you can keep having these moments of, of great zeal where, where, where you're faithful for the things of God and, and you desire that and, and you fear God and, and, and you work yourself up. Today is going to be the day where I'm going to walk perfectly, where I'm going to do it, where I'm going to go for it. Or you can realize that Jesus has already come and that by faith, by trusting in Jesus Christ, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, that he went to heaven, that he's coming back for us. A real savior, a real king who's actually here with us today. So you can keep trying, you can keep straining, or you can trust. Or you could turn. Repentance, trust, and baptism. Where you can become one with Jesus. Just like a bride and a groom, when they come together, become one. A bride and a groom share everything they have. A last name, inheritance, house, children. When you become united to one person, it all becomes yours. And this is what Paul says in Philippians chapter two. We've been united with Christ. That we are one with Christ. His righteousness is ours. The same way that your last name, Kaylee, is now Newberry. And his righteousness is ours. That his relationship with the Father is ours. That we don't relate, we don't relate to God as slaves, as fearful slaves because of our union with Christ, because of our oneness with Christ, we are sons and daughters of the Most High God, now and forevermore. Amen. His inheritance becomes ours. All that Christ has, all that Christ has conquered, all that Christ is doing is ours. You see, God hasn't changed between Exodus 19 and 20 in the New Testament. No, God changes us. God desires our faithfulness, our fear for us to follow him. And Christ came to give us those things. And what happens when we put our, our trust not in a law, but in a person? 
when we realize what Christ has done for us, that he has forgiven us, he has freed us, he has enabled us to, by his spirit that dwells inside of us to keep these commands, to walk with him, to walk in repentance, we discover a love for Jesus. We discover a thankfulness for Jesus. We discover a desire to know this Jesus more fully. And what a law could never do, Christ Jesus came to do. What a law could not do, Jesus Christ came to do. To bind our hearts to God in love. So because of Jesus, we still fear God. That commandment doesn't go away in the scriptures in the New Testament. No, we fear him, we trust his authority. As a people of God, we, we wake up and we are eager to listen, to obey. That is the Holy Spirit leads us. We are quick to listen, quick to obey. And we follow him. And we bless others. The blessing that we have received because of Jesus. It's more than just about our, our unique personal relationship with God that we understand this Jesus, what he actually brings, that he's actually alive. And it moves us to bless our coworkers and our neighbors and our families in this world that does not know Jesus. I go, what might happen? What might happen when Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ becomes the center of who we are? Not just as individuals, but as a community. What happens? I want to pray for us. God, I've been thinking all week about a, a way to send us to the table, a way to send us to communion. And I think what you've taught me this week is that my job is, is to trust in you. To trust that you have forgiven me, to trust that you really are alive even when I can't see you or feel you or hear you. God, that this week you have reminded me the beauty and repentance. And God, I want to bless this world with you. That you have given me holiness. And I want to be a part of what you're doing in this world. And I want this church, I want these women, these men, these children to bless this city and this world with you, God. And to not hoard our holiness, to share it. So God, by the power of your spirit, would you open doors for us? Would you lead us into conversations? Would you let our paths cross with people? Would you open our eyes? Would you let our hearts be so uh, just infected with a love for Jesus that we care more about what you think and what you want than we do anything else in this life? God, as we go to the table, as we commune with you, as we take the bread, as we drink the cup, as we remember you not as a dead <clears throat> prophet, but as a risen king, that you would open our eyes, that you would awaken our hearts, that you would pour out your spirit, that you would minister to us well. We love you, Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen.